0: I have a, a personal uh, social media policy of my own that's based upon the belief that while social media seems to be a great place to, to um, disseminate information, uh, I'm convinced it's a terrible place to discuss information. Uh, and as I watch through and I see, you know, I'll read in all uh, people's posts and uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, post them myself every now and then. But for the most part, in the comment sections below these. I have a hard time finding anything good's coming out of that, <laughs> but I, you know, other pastors disagree with me. And, and recently, uh, in the given the last two months of just sort of upheaval we've had in our country, uh, there was a pastor who decided that he would post his thoughts on our recent decision to change the Mississippi state flag. Um, the responding comments contained in that comment section, <laughs> y'all, it, it was contained some of the most vicious ungracious rhetoric I've ever had the displeasure to read. But there was one particular comment that I found particularly pitiful, and it was posted by a young woman um, who, in the midst of just spewing vitriol all around what she was saying, said something to this effect. She was like, personally, I've never been so confused in all my life. She said, I know that I want to follow Jesus, but listening to both sides of this debate... Makes me wonder how I can even do that in good conscience. I really relate to that young woman, and I'm guessing a few, more than just a few people here do as well. Like when we, a person is trying to say, I genuinely want to follow Jesus in the face of all these challenges in our culture, what do I do? Does God want me to retreat in really safe, isolated Christian huddles? Or does he want me to grab a poster and a placard and jump into the next protest? What does God want me to do? Well, we've been talking these last few weeks at Christ Press about all of the planks that represent our identity as a church. We've talked about the fact that we are here to proclaim a hope and build a home. Today we want to talk about what it means when we say we want to launch a healing. And if you'll notice as we've been looking through it, each one of those big planks corresponds to a rather large Bible topic. When we say that we're proclaiming a hope, we mean that we are grounding everything that we do in scripture. When we say we are building a home, we are talking about the fashioning of this body of Christ that Jesus calls the church. Well, when you start to talk about launching a healing, you're talking now about one of Jesus' most often talked about topics, and that is the nature of the kingdom, And if you really do some Bible study, you'll learn that it was Jesus' favorite topic. Because he comes along to say, I am coming to be a new king over a brand new humanity. And I've arrived. And so with his arrival, he comes and brings to fulfillment a long-awaited Jewish hope of longing to see the world remade and renewed. Jesus' claim was not only that he was proclaiming a kingdom, but that he was the king by virtue of his death and resurrection. But what you may not know is that Jesus' first announcement of the kingdom came in one of his very first sermons that we just read. From the very beginning, Jesus is saying, here is what faithfulness to me looks like. This is what it means for these people to follow me. And so therefore, you get this great unpacking of the nature of the kingdom in Luke chapter four. And I would submit to you that we can draw at least three things about the kingdom from it. We learn, first of all, that the kingdom is inward, outward. Secondly, we find that the kingdom is local, global. And then finally, the kingdom is Jesus' grace. Let's look at that first one. The kingdom is inward, outward. What do I mean by that? Well, I simply mean to answer the question, what is Jesus saying here? He's returned to his hometown of Nazareth, uh, and as he's used to doing, he goes to synagogue. Yes, it was Jesus' habit to go to church. (laughs) And as he was there, I assumed he had already achieved some measure of notoriety. The elders of the church invited him to come and be a guest preacher that morning. And so he chose a very uh, familiar Old Testament passage from Isaiah 61. And what he says is, is, he talks about how the writer mentioned about being, having the Spirit of the Lord upon them that caused him to do these things, to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty for the captives, sight for the blind, and freedom for the oppressed. And so the question that has kind of preoccupied Jesus' followers for quite some time is this, what exactly was Jesus talking about when he said those things? And what you'll find is this is where a divide forms. On the one hand, you have people who will, who will I'll describe it as spiritualize these passages uh, using air quotes, as I'm wont to do. In other words, they'll say things like, yes, when Jesus is talking about poverty, he means spiritual poverty. You know, the poor in, 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 in spirit, like the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus talks about captivity, he's referring to man's imprisonment in sin. And the release that he eventually secures for them. Oh, and by sight, he means sight from spiritual blindness. And this oppression they're experiencing are how God's people are victims of the devil's assaults and temptation. It's a spiritual view of those words. On the other hand, in other quarters of church history, you've had some people who have taken what I would call a decided social approach to what Jesus is saying. They're saying, look, Jesus is announcing a very special status that only poor people have. That they are to enjoy a sort of um, uh, equality of outcome in society. They also will say these captives mean political captives from around the world that are being trapped by oppressive hands and worldly regimes. By sight for the blind, that's a broad term that describes Christians' responsibility to be about the business of bringing healing to sick people. And I don't think it's actually overstating it to say that generally speaking, if you find yourself as an American Christian conservative, you've probably gravitated towards that spiritualizing. But if you found yourself from a background of sort of classic liberalism, you sort of found yourself gravitating towards more social aspects or what people call liberation theology. And so if you've come here maybe even for the first time, you may be asking, all right Les, so what is Christ President's view of what Jesus is saying? That's a great question. And you've heard me say it a couple of times in the last two years, and it's simply this. Any church that lacks both of these emphases, with some very important qualifiers throughout, is gonna fall short of Jesus' vision. And here's the reason why. Because it is a decidedly non-Jewish way of looking at the world that somehow neatly separates what's going on in my heart From what is going on in the way I express my heart in the structures of society. There is no separation in Jewish mind. To divide those things as we have in American Christianity is false and less than what Jesus is describing. Because what happens is there are spiritual sicknesses that come from both of those extremes. I would argue that the American sort of conservative oftentimes creates a vacuum of real genuine action. If my spirituality is purely inward and kept to myself and never touches the world around me, we have to ask a question about about its authenticity, don't we? While on the other hand, the liberal sort of looks at these uh, sort of uh, passages and ends up creating a powerful moralism that in my opinion tends to underestimate how much our human hearts are going to resist anyone's effort to change us through some kind of legislative action. And we'll actually turn around and get amazingly condescending to people who mess with their agenda. But look, I simply want you to appreciate where Jesus stood with his societal situation. Because Jesus had no friends in the bifurcated social world religiously that he was living in. This polarization that he felt earned him enemies both from the left and from the right. Whether it be Pharisees or Sadducees which led one preacher I was reading to to, to saying this. He said, Jesus calls his people to be spiritually bicultural. On the one hand, we are to live in real communities with real relationships, not only with people, but in the very structures that oversee and create the kind of lives that we have. But at the same time, his people in the midst of that place are to retain a distinctiveness, what the Bible will call holiness as we function in those places that never compromises our allegiances to him. In other words, God doesn't want his people either to assimilate to the culture around them, nor does he want them to segregate themselves from the world around them. Dr. Anthony Bradley warns that in America, there's a version of Christianity that he thinks needs to be confronted And he he titles it Great Commission Christianity. Great Commission Christianity is the Christian who believes that the beginning, middle, and end of all Christian discipleship is about evangelism, and only evangelism, getting people saved. I think actually it's a fairly safe premise to say that for much of conservative, white evangelicalism, we have trended towards that particular form of religious experience, that God's only dealing with the question of people who make confessions of faith and submit to water baptism. But Bradley says, rather than sort of live with that vision, what if we had something instead that he calls cosmic redemptive Christianity? Because this view says that Jesus' primary concern was to launch a global healing for the entirety of creation. Yes, dealing with the sin inside each individual human heart without question, but then moving from that heart into a broadness of Jesus' vision that sees everything in the world to be renewed, everything, every structure, every place, everything. And so therefore, this helps us understand how to prioritize and to know to prioritize the way Jesus does. And the way we do that, simply stated, is because a Christian believes that in Jesus' plan of salvation for the whole world, to transform everything around them, it begins in individual human hearts. That's where it starts. And because that's the case, local churches like this ought to make that their primary concern. Listen to Michael Wilcock on this, one of my favorite commentators on Luke. He says, We must believe, as clear-thinking Christians in every age have always believed, that it is the will and plan of God for all wrong relationships, political as well as spiritual, eventually to be put to right. We include, therefore, in our preaching of salvation, the need for the righting of wrong social structures and physical conditions. But we keep at its center the need for the cleansing of sinful human hearts. That is the primary concern of the people of God. And if I can add to it, for what a local church ought to be about. It means that the kingdom of God is inward, outward. We start here with the primary place, the center of human motivation, and that's the human heart. And we trust that God brings it out around. But here, don't miss Jesus' point here. Jesus is not delivering a purely political manifesto Or some kind of carte blanche endorsement of someone who is poor just because they're poor. What he's saying though actually is, is the poor though, they kind of tend to get my ministry more than people that are rich. Why? Because their social station in life makes them embrace Jesus with humility. In other words, their physical needs become a very powerful metaphor to understand a spiritual need. In other words, when Jesus starts staying, saying, repent to a broken, poor person, it's not a stretch the way it is for someone who is wealthy. Jesus says what he wants you to do is to receive the kingdom of heaven like a child. And that doesn't mean with innocence uh, you know, and ignorance. What he means is with disenfranchisement. Because a child, we know for a fact, was a second-class citizen in that society. He did not have the privileges of other people. And so what Jesus is saying is, if you are wealthy, it will tend to mask for you the true condition of your heart. Because you're so comfortable physically. After all, Jesus looks at him and says, it's hard for a rich person to get into the kingdom of heaven. Hey, and please understand something. Every single person in this room is rich. By by anyone in the world's recommendation. That means it is a challenge for us to see the kingdom of heaven. There's a special burden on us as wealthy Christians to think through what Jesus is saying. More on that in just a second. The point of this first point is just that Jesus begins in the human heart and then moves out. Secondly, though, the kingdom is not just inward, outward, but it's also local, global. What do I mean by that? Well, look, I purposely left off what Jesus said in verse 19 because it's not that easy to understand. Because this last prophecy that Jesus makes in this spirit-led moment is to, quote, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Okay, look now, that is actually Old Testament Jewish code that is talking about a very specific Levitical practice that was known as the year of Jubilee. Okay, back, back when the people of God were self-contained into an ethnicity, a geopolitical body called Israel, God gave them a number of feast days to celebrate their identity as a people. Well, one of the things he did, and if you've never heard of this, buckle up, because it's going to blow your mind. The Jewish rite has said in the book of Leviticus that every 50 years, there was to be a year long celebration. And in that year, nobody worked. You got a year off, and even without a pandemic, you just got a year off. That wasn't funny in the first service, and it's not funny in the second service. I should just stop trying to do that. The second thing that happened is every debt that you ever had was immediately canceled. And the third thing that happened was any slavery in which you had found yourself or that you had acquired in days past was immediately canceled. The year of Jubilee is one of the most radical, social, God inspired social reset buttons that I know of any kind of ancient literature. It's astounding. And I realize that you're thinking to yourself, well, yeah, Les, that's, that's why it's in the Old Testament. They, they did weird stuff like that back then. Okay, well, then tell me why it is, though, that Jesus takes up the topic himself in his first sermon. What does he mean by that? What are we to glean by that? Well, think about this for a moment. Life expectancy was such in Jesus' day where you had some reasonable assurance, generally speaking, to have at least one year of jubilee that you would have celebrated in your lifetime. So I want you to imagine for a moment that they actually were celebrating the year of jubilee during Jesus' time. Hey, by the way, we have no Old Testament record that the Jews ever celebrated the year of jubilee. (laughs) Go figure. It was as hard for them as it would be for us to even think about it. right? But let's imagine that that happens. Do you realize that there's a moment where if you for at that time had become disadvantaged because of what your father did or perhaps your grandfather found himself in slavery or dead indebtedness and they passed away before the year of Jubilee, you realize that you will be bearing the weight of responsibility for your ancestors' failures. That's on you. Now why do I mention that? Well, Because honestly, I have listened for so many months now of how offended people have been at the thought of having to apologize for sins that you don't feel like you committed or that your ancestry committed. And we look and we say to ourselves, well, I didn't do that. That wasn't what I did. Can't we just quit talking about all this racism stuff? But please understand something that the spirit of the year of Jubilee shows that God was perfectly fine. With people taking on the responsibility of things done in the past and confessing it as individuals now. You actually see it explicitly in places like Daniel chapter nine, Nehemiah chapter nine, where those prophets are perfectly happy standing up and saying, God, this is on us. This is our responsibility. Look, the year of Jubilee demonstrated that they were on a different level of humanity because of their ancestors' action. They were living with blessings or cursings that accrued to them by no other virtue than their simple birth. And for that reason, they recognize that I have an accountability that I owe to those people. And therefore, I can come in and confess that sin. But of course, by channeling this Old Testament practice, Jesus is sort of getting us to own that spirit of this little half century event. It was central to his message. And again, I realize that for all of us, for many of us, the upheaval of these last months have been, they've just been upsetting. And we just wish that it would all go away. Oh, can't we just quit talking about all this racism and divisions? And can't we just talk about solutions? Hey, great idea. What are your solutions? What exactly are our solutions? <laughs> Because all I simply want to mention from this point is it is decidedly not a solution to close our eyes to the struggles of our neighbors and just wish that they would go away. Cross fingers are not a strategy for how to heal God's world. I would encourage us from our own denominations, a confession of faith. You know, Connected to our confession of faith is a larger and a shorter catechism. In larger catechism question 145 unpacks sins that are associated with the ninth commandment. The ninth commandment is a commandment that deals with your tongue. The things that you say and as it turns out the things we do not say. Listen to what it says. It says one of the violations of that commandment is an undue silence in a just cause. Holding our peace when iniquity calls either for a reproof from ourselves or a complaint to others. Hey, look, do you see this? The kingdom is local, global. It begins with me as an individual, but it reaches back into my history. It reaches me in my now towards uh, my family. It reaches out into my future, into my neighborhood and my developments. And so a faithful church is always having this conversation of what does it look like for us to live in the light that the year of Jubilee is being fulfilled in us. What does that look like? Now, look, I honestly want to honor the fact that we can come to different conclusions about how. Of course we can. But that we have the conversation is not an option. How can we do that best? One small little addition before we move into the last point, and that's this. We choose our words very carefully. We say we are here to launch a healing. In other words, we're saying that a local church is properly where transformation starts, It's not always the best place to funnel all of society's solutions through. In in other words, we are the launching pad for God's work in the world as a local church. We're not the rocket. You know what the rocket is? It's the lives of individual Christians going out into every corner of God's kingdom, far as the curse is found, and doing whatever we're convinced God has called us to do. What can I do? How can I help? All that to say is just because something good needs to be done in the world doesn't mean that it needs to be funneled through this church. The church has made this mistake lots of times through its history. Oftentimes, we complicate and make it worse, frankly. And we need to entrust that God is using, by his spirit-led grace, God's people in every area of life. So yes, so the kingdom is inward, outward, it's local, global, and then finally the kingdom is Jesus' grace. Don't you love how this passage ends? Jesus finishes reading the story, then he goes and sits down, kind of stares everybody. It's very dramatic. All eyes are fixed on Jesus. What's he going to (laughs) say? And he basically stands up and says, hey, you know what you just read about? You know that passage you just heard? You know all that redemption it was talking about? You ready for this? It was all about me. I'm the one. It's like that moment in Iron Man, you know, where Tony Stark gets up and he says, I am Iron Man. I find it more than a little interesting that Iron Man then goes on to give his life to save the world. wonder where they got that idea. Look at what Jesus says in the verse. He says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's a good word to underline. What does he mean when he says Fulfilled. Because the rest of the book of Luke really records exactly what Jesus means when he says he's going to fulfill it. And here's what I think he's saying. He's saying, yes, this ministry of mine, it is going to undo you. It just is. And what it's going to do, is going to be very uncomfortable, but it's going to expose you as a spiritual fraud. Yes, it will lead you to a material poverty that will be a metaphor for your spiritual poverty. That's what it's all going to do. But you know what? Do not fear. Because I am going to uphold both. I'm going to uphold both the shattering demands of the year of Jubilee. But I'm also going to absorb the punishment for all of your offenses of it. Don't you see the genius? There's no way man can live under the crushing design of the year of Jubilee. Unless there is one who will say himself, I will absorb on your behalf what God has directed at his people for their failures. Hey, let me ask you a question. How will you stand before a holy God? Will your fingers be crossed hoping that you merited enough? Or will you stand on the sure foundation of Jesus Christ who said very clearly, it is now fulfilled in your hearing. It all meets in me. Because once that happens, you kind of start to talk differently. It leads me to a story that I'll close with of a large, prestigious British church that had planted another church in the inner city of the, of that of London. And it was interesting because once a month they would invite uh, the members of that other church into the mother church uh, for a communion Sunday. And the pastor looked up on this particular Sunday at the communion rail that went all around the front of the of the stage. And he looked down and he saw one of his members who was a judge kneeling at the communion bench right next to a thief that he had put into jail some years before. And there they were together at the communion bench. Well, after the service was over, the judge was walking out with the pastor and the judge looked at the pastor and said, did you notice who was kneeling beside me at the communion rail this morning? Man, what a miracle of grace. The pastor responded, a a marvelous miracle of grace indeed. That former convict The judge looks and goes, no, 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 no. I wasn't referring to him. I was talking about me. The minister was so surprised. He said, what? I I don't understand. The judge went on to say, you see, judge, it's not surprising that the burglar received God's grace when he left jail. He had nothing in his history but crime. And when he understood Jesus could be a savior, he knew there was salvation, hope, and joy for him. In other words, he knew that he needed help. But look at me. I was taught from earliest infancy to live as a gentleman. That my word was to be my bond. That when I said my prayers and go to church and take communion and so on, that I was blessed. I went through Oxford and obtained my degrees. I was called to the bar and eventually I became a judge. And in the midst of it all, I was sure I was all I needed to be. But in fact, I was a sinner too. Pastor, it was God's grace that drew me in. It was God's grace that opened my heart to receive Christ. Therefore, I am the greater miracle. See, that's what happens. You start to talk that way when grace comes in the middle of a community. What is it that unites us in the midst of a polarizing society? What is it that draws us together as we seem to be heading in opposite direction and will split our country apart? It is grace. It is only the grace in Jesus that gives us hope to be able to do that. In other words, what happens is you begin to look at the disenfranchised and the poor and the broken and the oppressed. And you know what? They become your concern. You wanna know why? Because you get them. You get it. We don't condescend. I don't roll my eyes. I don't walk past a poor person and think to myself, get a job. Or look on television at the latest arrest and say, well, quit breaking the law because there's been a principle inside me that's kept me from being able to do that. And suddenly, you know what's happened? You've been healed. And the way you look at the world around you begins to spread that healing out. And one day, someday, God's going to put an end to all sin and all destruction and all oppression and all injustice because of what he planted in Christ. Would to God that we would be that kind of congregation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you come and draw near to us in this moment as we begin to sing. Father, as we begin to sing of a hope of a glory that you're bringing, we pray. Every single day, Father, would you encourage us to know that grace moves, it motivates, it fashions, it puts me in real life situations to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. Father, help us not to compartmentalize this grace and assume that we've checked a box on our eternal state and therefore can go about and live any way that we want. Father, show us the lines of the gospel that we might live in the midst of them and be agents of healing in Oxford, at Old Miss, in Lafayette County, and even your world. Would you do that? We ask it all in Jesus' name.